Welcome to Recovery is Possible, a weekly podcast exploring the opioid crisis through personal stories and interviews with individuals, families, and community members. This podcast is brought to you by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium, funded through the HRSA Office of Rural Health Policy. In episode one, Stephanie's story, we are talking to Peer Support Specialist Coordinator, Stephanie Hoover. Stephanie shares her story of addiction through a caregiver's perspective. Welcome, Stephanie. Hello. Hi, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, So Stephanie, you work helping to raise awareness for opioid use and addiction. Absolutely. As well as provide support for people struggling with opioid use disorder in Moore and the surrounding counties. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? So first and foremost, I am not someone in recovery. Um, And I think for most, when they see what we do, that's the first impression is that everyone that is doing the work is in recovery. And for me, I was a caregiver. My son um, started using about the age of 14 and I became his enabler and codependent for -hmm. many years. So it was, um, he went from marijuana and I thought that was the only place he would go and um, it turned out to be a Pana, cocaine, Xanax, heroin, pretty much anything he could get his hands on. How quickly did that escalate? I think he did marijuana and alcohol from 14 to about 17 and when he got close to the age of 18 he started switching to harder drugs because the marijuana no longer um, filled that void. Also, he was dealing at the time, so I think he was selling things that he had not used, and so then he tried them. And that's really where um, his addiction escalated. When did you become aware that he was doing something more than marijuana? Probably 2014, um, during the U.S. Open. I got a phone call after catering an event um, from someone I didn't know, a female, and said that Alex had been dumped on her stoop, and she had called 911, and he was on his way to the ED. Um, He had overdosed. And when I got to the ED... Um, after waiting forever and pretty much threatening the, the nurses there, let me in to see my son because my patients, I didn't have it. I wanted to see him and see how he was doing. Um, found out he had been using Opana, had never heard of it before, didn't know what it was, and he had mixed it with alcohol, which is a deadly combination. And Opana is a synthetic morphine, is that correct? It's a synthetic morphine used for, it's for cancer patients. Yeah. Yeah, and he, uh, with that overdose, he had a massive heart attack. So he was in ICU for three days. How old was he at the time? He was 19. 
Yeah. Where was he living? That's a good question. Um, he was kind of couch hopping. Um, didn't really know where he was living, though we talked a lot. He never would tell me where he was staying. Um, it was, oh, I'm staying with a friend. Um, I've got a roommate. But she kind of never knew what was the truth and what was a lie. Um, he had a car. So at that time, I thought he had an apartment. My gut now says he probably was living in his car most of the time. So when you walk into the emergency department, or when you finally see your son, what are you thinking? I wasn't prepared for what I saw. Um, if anybody has ever seen The Exorcist, that's kind of the image that was there. Um, he was strapped down to a gurney. Um, there were six or seven people around him trying to get an IV into him. He had ripped it out four or five times. Um, thrashing, cussing, things were coming out of his mouth that um, I had never heard. Sounds, it was like a rabied animal. He had foam coming out of his mouth. Um, they could not get him to calm down. I slipped behind one of the nurses and put my hand on his forehead and he calmed down. He just literally collapsed on the gurney. Um, they got the IV in it, in his arm, and you could see that his arm was already turning black from the bruising. And one of the nurses said, you need to step back. And I'm like, excuse me, this is my son. And she goes, you're going to want to step back. And it was just a couple seconds, and he sat up and literally projectile vomited across the room. And that's was my first experience of an overdose. That was my first experience of someone using IV drugs. Um, you never think it's going to happen to your kid. You think, oh, it's somebody else. It's not my child. He was raised in a very good home. You know, I loved him very much. Yes, his father and I were divorced. Yes, he had a stepfather, but our, we had a good home. We came from a good family. Looking back, there were things that we put in the closet and we didn't want to talk about. And those are things you have to deal with and not kind of brush under the rug. Um, looking back, that's how he coped. Hmm. You said in the beginning that you became his enabler and codependent. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? You know, it's been quite a few years and looking back and studying and realizing that as a mom, the fear of where's your child? What is he doing? Has he eaten? Does he have clothes? Those things go through your mind. So if, if he would call it, Mom, I need money for food. Sure, here you go. Mom, I need gas money. Sure, here you go. And just give him cash. Not putting two and two together that nine times out of ten that money was going to be used to go purchase drugs. Um, did you not put two and two together? Or did you not want to put two and two together? You don't want to. Yeah. And I think it's knowing now what I know and studying and 
everything, the experiences that I've had, um, the schooling that I've done, you know, as an enabler and as a codependent, I took all his responsibilities away as an adult. He was an adult. He knew right from wrong. He knew what he should and shouldn't do uh, when it when it came to, you know, paying your bills, you know, working, those things. Those things were instilled in him. Um, and what drove him to start using drugs was not what kept him using. And so as the, as the enabler, I took everything, all the responsibilities away. So his only focus was where do I get drugs and when can I use again? So looking back, I probably hurt the situation more than I helped because I did that. Had I said, no, I'm not going to give you money, but I'll bring you some food or no, you can come here for dinner. I'm not going to give you cash for food or gas. I'll go fill up your car or I'll meet you to fill it up. Um, not giving him the healthy boundaries that he needed. After his overdose, what happened then? So he was in ICU for three days. Um, and as a good mom, you know, I walk up there and he's in ICU and I'm like, okay, we're going to treatment. We are going to get you well. We're going to get you clean. We're going to do this. The problem is I kept using the word we. And I kept using, you're going to do this. You are going to do this. Um, knowing what I know now, it's the worst thing I could have done. You know, I don't, I wouldn't want someone telling me what to do. How could I think that my son, my child, my man, my son who is now a grown man, would want to be told what to do? And as a caregiver, we want so much for them to change that we will it, not realizing it has to be their decision and it has to be something that they desire and they want. Where he did it, first treatment lasted five days. I'm not doing this. This is not for me. He then went someplace else. He went through the program. He came out of the clouds. He saw the blue sky. His head was clear. I saw my son. It was beautiful. It lasted a few months because, again, it wasn't his idea. It's, I'll play the part because I love my mom. I'll play the part because I love my siblings. And his pain was still there. He hadn't addressed that. When you were sitting with him in the hospital the first time, did you ever ask him what he wanted to do? No. Why would I do that? No. No. It wasn't about him. And that was the problem. It was what I wanted. You're going to do this because this is what I want. And that was the problem. It wasn't, hey, bud, had that feel. How does it feel to know that you've just had a massive heart attack? How does it feel to know that you could have died? 
Those questions weren't asked. Should have been. But I didn't know what I didn't know back then. And I didn't ask him, how can I help you to help yourself? How can I help you support? How can I support you in, in change if that's what you want? And if it's not, would you consider using less? Because his main focus was, I want to please mom. But really, I want to deceive mom to get back out to do what I want to do. How is he supporting the habit at this point? He's dealing. And that's scary in itself. Because when he was in the hospital, a dealer came to my house. Knocking on the door. How he knew where I lived, I don't know. And asking for him. And his excuse was, oh, he's got a game of mine. I knew different. Told him never to come back. Because I knew who he was. And I knew what he wanted. But did I address that with Alex? No. Really? No. I told him he came. I told him, don't ever let this guy come back to my house. But I didn't address the elephant in the room. Is this how you want to make money? Do you understand the consequences of this? Do you understand that by you dealing, you are enabling other people down a horrible journey? You may not be the one to stop it, but you're aiding in that and abetting in that. And is that the life you want? Do you think that your failure to address it is another way that you enabled it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do I live with that every day? Absolutely. Is that part of the passion that drives me today? 100%. So after Alex went to treatment mm -hmm. and you said that he came out of the clouds, I think is how you described it. Yeah. What was that like for you? It's a person you saw that you had not seen in a long time. You saw your child again. You saw the person he could be. You saw someone who put on weight and was healthier. Um, his light came back in his eyes. His light in his voice, in his step that when he was in active addiction, you didn't see because it that light was gone. The candle had burnt out. Um, so that was, it was beautiful. And you, Alex has, has charisma, so you want to be around that. You want, he's witty, he's funny, he's a Southern gentleman, so you, your desire to be around that and when he is clear-headed and out of the clouds oh magnify that by a thousand it's great yeah and how long did that last 
four months. And you notice one day that he doesn't call like he used to. He calls like he did when he was in active addiction. Um, the lies come again. The desire, Mom, I need money. And this time I didn't give it to him. It was no, if you need something and I have time today, I will go get you food. Um, and putting, starting to put those healthy boundaries in place. Because after his first overdose, that's when I really dug in and started learning and educating myself. It was difficult. Very hard to change. How did he react to these new boundaries? Hated it. Hated it. You're not acting like you used to, he used to say. Um, you used to give me money. Why won't you now? And when you would express to him why, anger would come out. How did that feel for you? Guilt. It's more guilt than anything. He needs it. So you think. Um, someone in active addiction, if they want drugs, they're, they're going to find a way to get them. So if they need gas money, they should be able to find, be able to find a way to get it. You've got to decide, is it, are you going to use the money for gas? You're going to use the money to purchase drugs. And it was easier to ask mom because then he didn't have to steal. He didn't have to deal. He didn't have to do those things. Um, or he was still doing those things too. And this was just another way to get more money. But now mom wasn't operating the way he wanted me to operate. And it was very frustrating for him. What happened next? So six months after the second relapse, he called and said he wanted to go back into recovery and go back to treatment. And this time it was his idea, which was fantastic. Um, he went back to the same place and I said, I just have one request. When you finish the first phase and you go to the second phase, don't come back to Moore County. And he goes, Oh, I won't. This is not where I need to be. Um, so he went to Dunn. Um, they had a halfway house there. And I took him. Beautiful whole old house. Loved the woman that, that ran it. Very strict. And I was really hopeful that this is this is his choice. This is where he wants to be. This is going to be a great place for him to be. Um, about a month and a half in, he calls and says, Hey, Mom, I've met somebody. And by this time, I've read so much about recovery and addiction and um, the do's and the don'ts and the things you should and shouldn't do. And I said, son, you know that, that your first year you need to focus on you. It's okay. She understands me. And 
It really discouraged it. But he did it anyway. You know? And he calls two weeks later. Hey, Mom, guess what? And I knew it was coming. Um, you kind of will it out and will it not to happen. But she was pregnant. And I really encouraged him to stay where he was. I said, you know, you can stay. Get some more months under your belt um, for better success. What I didn't know, they had already gotten married. That he had already moved out. Um, and that's part of him that I love. Because he was an adapter. Like me. So he knew he had a responsibility to now his new wife, to now a baby on the way. So he was going to fix it and, and find a way to make it better. And he got a job. They found a little place to live. And I was proud of him because he was continuing recovery. So I thought. Was he the same Alex you saw before, the one who was out of the clouds? At first, yes. Yeah, he was. But you see that light and those clouds come in. And slowly, and he's he was he was very, very good at hiding. Um, and Amy would tell you that he was really good at hiding. And if you saw him, anybody that met him would never have a clue because he took care of himself. He dressed very nicely. He presented very nicely. So you didn't see the dark side of him. Only very few saw that. Um, and this is when she started hiding. And she started hiding what was going on. And Amy is his wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and my granddaughter was born and... Um, I think the pressures of a marriage, the pressures of trying to be a good provider of a new father, um, it just was overwhelming. And the fact that he had not worked on his coping skills, um, it was overwhelming and he didn't know what else to do. So in his mind, it's easier to escape than to deal with everything going on. Um, and I think some of the people from his past seeped back in and at no fault Amy had no clue who they were until it was too late. So then the barriers were put up, the anger but towards me from her and then my anger back. It was more out of fear. Her fear that he's something's gonna happen to him. My fear that something's gonna happen and not knowing her well enough to, to be able to lean on each other and work together. So they have a baby. Mm -hmm. And at this point, are you aware that Alex is yes. using again? Yes. Mm -hmm. And those are conversations we had where, you know, you're driving in the car with her. You're driving the car with your wife. You have a new child. Um, 
Don't you want to be better? Don't you want to set a better example? And he would deny. I'm not doing anything. I'm working 40 hours a week. I'm working 50 hours a week. I'm not doing anything. And it was closer to when she was a year that we were seeing he was missing work. And he would say, um, didn't know how much he was missing. And then in April of 2017, she calls. And our relationship was tumultuous and very difficult. Um, she called to say that he had overdosed again. And my response was, I think, well, at least this is just the second one. We've had a little bit of space between the first and the second. And there was silence. This was his fifth. Third heart attack, and this time he had done kidney damage. Wow. Yeah. A lot to take in at that time because she didn't want me at the hospital. And I think it was fear of mom's going to come in and try to take over, which wasn't my intent. I just wanted to make sure he was okay. And she said they had a plan. And I encouraged him to go back to treatment. You know, it's, you've got a wife, you've got a family. And he goes, no, mm -mm. we got this. We got this. That didn't last long. I always saw Memorial Weekend. So just a couple weeks later, he was still using. And at that point, you know, he's around his younger siblings. And I just told him, I said, we can't do this anymore. You're, we've got to set healthy boundaries for you. And you can't be around them. They have to understand that recovery has to come first. Or everything else in your life is going to come last. And June 2nd, 2017, 10.38 in the morning, Amy calls me. Alex is dead. I can see on your face that that moment never changes. Nope. Do you really love it? And it's different than a normal death. In what way? If someone dies of a heart attack, of a disease, cancer, stroke, whatever it may, natural causes, a community will embrace you. Um, when someone dies of an overdose, it's as if you have leprosy and the community 
people that you thought were friends, people that you thought would be there, family, they take their hands off of you. And you're literally standing there alone with your four young kids. Where you have to put your grief aside, shove it in a box, and put it on a shelf. And that's what I did. Do you think some of that grief is still there in that box? Oh, God, yeah. You don't let it out. Because if I let it out, I'm too controlled to let it out, one. You have fear that if it comes out, it'll never go back in. And there's too much work to do. It's a lot to carry. Hmm? For him, it's worth it. You talked about his death being different. Hmm. Did you feel judged? Oh my gosh, still do. Um, I can't tell you how many times I go into a, into the grocery store and if someone sees me, um, who I thought were friends or acquaintances, um, they'll turn and walk away. I ran into someone almost a year after he died in the grocery store. I was in there with my boyfriend and I looked up and she's looking at me crying and I said, it's okay. And she's like, I haven't wanted to run into you. And I said, it's okay. And I gave her a hug. I said, it's okay. It really is okay. Asked how her son was doing because her son and my son used to use drugs together. Her son chose recovery. Alex died. And so for her, there was a lot of guilt. But it was okay. I was and am grateful that her son chose recovery. It just wasn't the path for mine. And I'll never forget, she walked away, and my boyfriend looked at me and he said, you should never be the one comforting her. She should be comforting you. And he goes, but that never happens for you. He goes, you were always the one comforting others. You said early on that the reason Alex started using drugs mm -hmm. and the reason he continued using drugs were two different reasons. Correct. Why do you think he started using drugs? For him, it was he didn't feel like he fit in. He didn't feel like he belonged anywhere, um, though he was liked, though he was loved, though he had 
the charisma. He didn't let people in for fear of being hurt. And so he walked through elementary school, middle school, and even high school looking for a place that was soft to land. And he just didn't find it because he had so many things within himself that he was hiding. Um, you know, every home looks perfect on the outside until you walk through the doors and you really get in and you see what's going on. And that, that was our house. And from the outside, it looked great. But there was a lot of emotional abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, and verbal abuse. And he became my protector. And I allowed it. And I carry guilt for that. I should have been protecting him. And I didn't. Because I was so broken at the time. So when you when you go back to being in that grocery store and your boyfriend says, you, you never are the one being comforted. Right. Is there part of you that doesn't think you deserve Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Guilt, shame. I wasn't a good enough mom. I should have seen the signs earlier. I should have stepped in earlier. I should have protected him better than I did. But what I know is those were his choices. Um, it's like driving a car. As adults, as, as parents, we're the driver of the car. And when you have a child or a spouse or a parent who's in active addiction, they jump in the driver's seat. And they're choreographing your journey and their journey. And you have to put them in their own car so that you can drive your own journey. And when you do that, you have that guilt, you have that shame. And then when you lose them, There's this stigma in the community. We've lived here for so long. Oh, that's the one whose son overdosed. Oh, that's the one whose son used drugs. You know, oh, she's divorced. They don't have a dad. They don't have a father figure. People are really quick to judge. And if you peel back an onion, there's so many layers to an individual, to a family, to a marriage, that it doesn't matter if it's the perfect family and you've got a great dad and a great mom and great kids who are athletes and, you know, scholar students. You don't know what that individual is battling within themselves. 
and it can take someone introducing them to something and they going, oh, I like this. And they keep using it and it goes from, I'm using this to study better, I'm using this to, to mask the pain, to now it's a habit. You know, and people go, oh, marijuana is the gateway drug. Mm, I disagree. My experience, trauma. Trauma is the gateway drug. And trauma could be a car accident. It could be a divorce. It could be a multitude of things. But trauma is the gateway drug. And if people don't know how to cope and they don't have those skills, any of us could be there. So Alex started, I think what you're saying is, with trauma. Mm-hmm. And then he kept using. To numb it. To numb it. And then that became the norm. He continued because it was the norm for him. He wanted to continue to feel normal. And when he was using, he felt normal. And the fear of taking that away and going into active recovery, the fear of, am I not going to feel normal? What is my normal going to look like now? And that has to be a fear for a lot of people. What do you think is the biggest misconception about family members, parents of children who are abusing drugs? You can't blame the parents. You can't blame the, quote, family situation. You have to focus on the individual Does this person have trauma? Does this person suffer from a mental disorder? What are other things that are contributing to the addiction? You can't look at just addiction. You have to look at the whole person. And you have to treat the whole person. Because if you just treat one piece of it, that's not a solution. The addiction is a symptom, in my opinion. As the mother of a son who used drugs and died by overdose, what would you say to another parent who might be in your shoes when Alex was alive and actively using? Learn to set healthy boundaries. As hard as it is, Say no. If they call, don't be at the ready constantly. Let them be an adult. If they're an adult, ask them every day, what can I do today to help you help yourself? Always be there to listen. Let them know that if they choose recovery, that you will support them in their choice of recovery because there's so many different avenues. And realize that 
in recovery, relapse does happen, and it's not a sense of failure. It's part of the process. And that it doesn't mean you love them any less if they relapse. But support them getting back into recovery. Do you think that for someone who's in recovery and struggles with relapse, that there's fear of disappointment or shame, and so they continue using because they're afraid of going back to a parent or a loved one and saying, hey, I'm, I'm using again and I need help. I would imagine that that is probably true. Um, that's why it's so important to have people and a support system when you are in recovery that when you feel you are slipping in your recovery and you have the potential to relapse, that you have those people and that support network set in place to lean on them. That's why we, we encourage people to have a wrap plan, which is, it's a wellness plan, but it's as it's in case they start spiraling they have individuals that can be contacted to say, hey, your role is X, your role is Y, your role is Z. And Joe is, is having issues with W. So this is, your, this is how you can help support him. We all need that. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's addiction. It doesn't matter. We need it in life. I want that plan. I know. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the support needs to be there. Doesn't necessarily have to be family? No. Because family may be a contributing factor to the addiction and an, and an un unhealthy contributing factor. So it's finding healthy support systems for each individual who is reaching for recovery. What do you remember most about Alex? And what do you want his legacy to be? What do I remember most about Alex? The way he loved. He loved hard. Um, his daughter was the light of his life. Two weeks after he died, we found out that Amy was pregnant again. And boy, did God give us a wink. Because he gave us a spinning image of him in just a little girl. Um, his legacy, two things, actually three. One, it has, it made Amy and I put down anger and really learn to communicate, which was the greatest gift. I don't know that we would have been able to do that if he were alive or it would have taken us a lot longer. Um, that's a gift. His legacy or his granddaughter, his daughters for sure. For me, it has driven my passion to helping others, even if it's one person. If it's one individual that says, can you help? Can you help me? Can I talk to you? Um, 
I'll put down everything for it. And that's why I love what I do. And do my other kids get frustrated? Yes. My daughter tells me all the time, your friend rings all the time. You're getting texts all the time. But addiction stops for no one. And if someone calls, we have to be ready to answer the phone. Because that window, they're not opening it all the way. They're cracking it. And if it cracks open, you've got to be willing to be right there. Because when it shuts, it could be the last time it shuts. Wow. That's so true. It's not a wide open. So that brings me to my last question. Okay. What do you want people to know about you and your story? And what do you want your legacy to be? I think for me, it's when someone loses a child, a parent, sibling, to an overdose, their grief is no less. I remember receiving cards and people saying, oh, I'm so sorry. But are you? Are you really? Where's the support? I remember reading cards, the sympathy. It'll get better, people would say. No, it doesn't. The first year was a blur because you expected everything. The second year, a couple things snuck up on you. The third year, this year has been the hardest because dates come up and you don't expect the emotions. So grief doesn't get better. It gets different. My legacy, that's a tough one. I just want to be a voice for change. I want to be a voice that if someone hears my name, this is a bold statement, they hear my name and know. That's the person that will move mountains. And I mean mountains. Whether it's court dates, whether it's incarceration, whether it's sitting with somebody in the hospital, whether it's withstanding someone with someone over the grave, whether it's standing with someone when they're cutting off a machine. That person will move mountains to support someone, to support a family, to make change when it comes to addiction and the opioid epidemic. I've sat with you so many times now, and it's literally never not emotional. I mean, we've talked about it so many times. Right. So I appreciate so much your willingness to talk about it again and to be so honest about your experience and to share your story. Absolutely. You have to talk. You can't let, you can't let it stay silent. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Recovery is Possible, sponsored by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium. 
For more information on treatment and recovery, visit our website at firsthealth.org slash recovery resources, where you can find additional resources, connect with a peer support specialist, and much more.